Georgia's DBHDD is warning all Georgians that half of all opioid deaths happen at home when people take an oxy or a perk with a glass of alcohol for stress or to sleep. Learn more about protecting families from opioid overdoses at opioidresponse.info. I think anyone who watched any part of the funeral services for John Lewis at Ebenezer Baptist Church in Atlanta yesterday would have to agree it was an exceptional day, an extraordinary day. Three former presidents of the United States paying their respects to Congressman Lewis, including former President Obama, who uh, used the opportunity not just to eulogize uh, uh, John Lewis, uh, but also um, to point out the dangers he believes the country faces as the election, uh, which John Lewis has always been so concerned about voting, uh, approaches in November. We're going to talk about that a little later on in the show today, but a confluence of events has made it really important, I think, for us to talk today once again about the coronavirus and its impact on the state of Georgia, and for that matter, uh, the country. Uh, You probably just heard in the NPR news break that uh, Dr. Fauci will be on Capitol Hill testifying about where the virus is headed and how the country is responding to it. Uh, Representative James Clyburn, who heads a House subcommittee on the coronavirus, has sent a letter to Governor Kemp uh, saying that he wants Kemp to report to him on how the state is working to control the virus here and suggesting the state is not doing as much as it needs to do I mean, clearly, you know, there are always politics involved in some of the conversations about the virus. And uh, I think it would be safe to say that Clyburn, in singling out just a few states, red states primarily, I mean, there is some politics there, even if he's well-intentioned. Finally, Governor Kemp, uh, his emergency order on restrictions that he's put in place in the state are up today. So... Uh, what happens next is going to be very important. So we're going to talk about all of that with a great panel today. I'm very happy that Jim Galloway, lead political writer for the Atlanta Journal-Constitution, who you read on Wednesdays and Sundays in the newspaper and who oversees the Political Insider blog at AGC.com. It's Friday, and so you're here. Hi, Jim. How you doing? Well, I'm doing great. I'm doing great. Uh, uh, but you're right. Yesterday was just a, a remarkable day, a three-hour funeral service. That doesn't happen often. Yeah, and, and, and we will talk about it uh, later in the show. But I, I want to introduce uh, uh, two people whose expertise in public health is just unparalleled. Uh, and I'm so happy that both of them were able to join me rather late in the game because of the importance of the conversation that we're going to have today. Uh, Dr. S. Elizabeth Ford is the director and CEO of the DeKalb Department of Public Health, but also the president-elect of the National Association of City and County Public Public Health Directors. You're a board-certified pediatrician as well, Dr. Ford, so I assume that schools and what happens when young children uh, may start heading back to the classroom is a particular concern given your work as a pediatrician, and we'll talk about that, okay, with you? Absolutely. Absolutely. Um, Doc, when does your when go when does your tenure start as the president of the National Association? Congratulations on that. Thank you so much. Um, currently, I'm president-elect, and in July of 2021, I will assume the role of president. Well, congratulations. Um, Thank you. I also want to introduce um, Dr. Carlos Del Rio, who has been. Uh, a very active voice in talking about the coronavirus in uh, the state of Georgia. He is the executive associate dean of the Emory School of Medicine and the Grady Health System, a professor in the Department of Medicine, Division of Infectious Diseases at the Emory School of Medicine, um, and co-director of the Emory Center for AIDS Research, among other academic fields. Uh, Dr. Del Rio, thank you so much for being with us today. It's a pleasure to have you here. How are you holding up in the middle of all this? Hey, Bill, thank you for having me with you. Uh, you know, myself and, and other healthcare workers are, are struggling. We are tired. Uh, we are very concerned about the number of patients coming in. And to be honest with you, we see no, no end in sight. And, and we're just very concerned because we're, we're just tired. 
And I do want to talk about that in more depth uh, as we uh, go through the show today. Um, but let me start with a couple of figures. First, let me just take the broadest look at the national picture. Uh, Johns Hopkins' latest reporting on uh, COVID-19 in, in the United States is, we'll just give you two figures. They say that there are now 4,495,224 confirmed cases of COVID-19 in our country, and the total of deaths has reached 152,075, and it is uh, moving upward. So um, troubling figures uh, for a disease that continues a spread. Um, but let's start. Um, Jim, I set out the other day, I, I was not aware until reading it in the New York Times, but Dr. Ford and Dr. Del Rio tell me they've seen these reports with some regularity. The White House's own task force on the coronavirus sends out frequent reports to the states on how the states are dealing with the virus. And there's a lot of good, rich data in these reports that I had not seen previously. Uh, the New York Times released a, uh, a version of the report that was just put out to the states on July 26, so it's pretty fresh. And it says, Jim, that Georgia is one of 21 states in the red zone, and we'll talk in a minute about what that means, and it recommends a lot of mitigating uh, 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 tools that the state could be using. Had you been? We don't usually see these reports, uh, Jim. No, no, and that's 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 kind of what's what's troubling about it. You know, there. I, I think we are all coming to realize how uh, uh, that 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 uh, the 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 pandemic policy is being viewed through through a, a highly political lens. And I, clearly, what's happening? I'd like to hear from the doctors on how closely this information is is normally kept. But clearly, you know, the state is learning one thing, and and the policies that it's acting on uh, are based on t totally on something else. I mean, I think the the the, the New York Times or the, the this report, the, the task force report you're talking about, uh, recommends closing of nightclubs and bars, uh, going back down to I think gatherings of ten. Uh, and we're we're seeing we're seeing none of that. Uh, we're not even seeing an acknowledgement of the recommendation from the state. Yeah, uh, Dr. Del Rio and Dr. Ford, I'd like you both to weigh in, but let me just very very quickly go through a couple of things. So the red zone is defined as an area which has more than a hundred new cases per hundred thousand population, and where the positivity testing is above ten percent. And uh, the report from July 26 says that Georgia's seen an increase in new cases and an increase in testing positivity over uh, the past week. And um, again, I'll start with you, Dr. Del Rio, but then go right to you, Dr. Ford. According to the report, we had 26,241 new cases last week, a positivity rate of 15.2%. Um, and, and so these are figures, and then it does have the recommendations that we can talk about in a minute as well. But um, both doctors, uh, Dr. Del Rio, what do you make when you see figures like this that we don't seem to know about them, but presumably state officials, including public health, do? Well, Jim, uh, you're correct. These reports are not available to the public. They go from the White House Coronavirus Task Force every week to all the the governors of every single one of the states. I would love to think that to have those reports available so we can all see them. But I will tell you that there's so much data out there that people can look at. And one of the advantages we have nowadays is there's plenty of places where we can look at data. And I, for example, like going to a site called COVID Act Now, or you can look at COVID exit strategy. There's so many good sites that are compiling data that you can look at. Data is critical in responding to any pandemic. And having data is, is, is just what, what everybody is looking for and what everybody needs. I think one of the things that we have been, uh, you know, struggling with is having more data and more data compiling in one place. And that was one thing that CDC used to do very efficiently and very well in the past. And in a recent editorial, Tom Frieden really asked for, for that to be available. And to that, it should be one of the major jobs of organizations like the CDC. 
So, uh, Dr. Ford, uh, the uh, the report from the task force lists 31 metro Georgia areas in the uh, uh, in the red zone. The top 12 include Atlanta, Sandy Springs, Alpharetta, Savannah, Augusta, Richmond, Columbus, Macon, Bibb, Dalton, Valdosta, Gainesville, Brunswick, Athens, Clark County, Warner, Robbins, Douglas. So these red zones are all over the state. But it then lists 103 counties in Georgia in the red zone, and those two are spread across state. By the way, we're going to have a link to this report on our social media platform so our listeners can look at it too. But Dr. Ford, what does that tell you? If we're in the red zone in 103 counties, 31 metro areas, how does that describe to you what the behavior of the virus in this state is right now? Well, we are definitely in widespread um, activity for corona here in Georgia and certainly in those counties that you mentioned. we are, you know, continuing to work on expanding testing, which is why we're getting increased numbers, which is a good thing because at least we know now who's being infected. Um, you know, there was a time when we were having uh, challenges with testing, and so at least now we have access to testing. And I think that's one positive way of, of trying to address this, you know, to, to, to halt the spread is to know who's positive so that we can begin the contract tracing, contact tracing efforts. But is, are we at a, do we describe it, Dr. Ford, as are we at a plateau? Are we spiking? I mean, these are, these are terms that we in the public, who are not public health experts, have come to understand these days. Is it even fair to characterize it as one of those things? Right. So, you know, we talked back in maybe April about this wave that we were anticipating in August. And, um, you know, I'm a California girl, so in order to have a wave, there has to be a down and then an up. And and so we, we yeah. haven't seen the down yet. So really what we're seeing is just a sustained increase. And, um, you know, I don't see that changing anytime soon. Yeah, the, 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 the real disturbing part of this, uh, uh, Bill, is is that, of course, you know, it is it is today is July 31st, you know, uh, We've got a lot of teachers going back to school. Uh, I know Cobb goes. Uh, t- Cobb teachers go back to school on August third. They students begin uh, 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 in metro counties. They're learning virtually most of them, uh, beginning maybe August seventeenth. But but in in most uh, the the vast majority of of Georgia's one hundred eighty one school systems, they're going back to in person voting. And uh, I, I was looking at some uh, some, some New York Times uh, a New York Times piece on some University of Texas data, where they they were doing the the statistical risk here, and basically named eight states, Georgia among them, where uh, a school of 100 students uh, has uh, is is very likely to have a a staff member or uh, a student infected with cor- coronavirus among them. Yeah, I, I want to talk. I'd like to park the schools for just a few minutes because I want to get an overview from Dr. Del Rio. Uh, excuse me, too. Dr. Del Rio, uh, I asked Dr. Ford the question, how do you describe where we stand in terms of the virus in Georgia right now? Well, you know, I agree with, with Dr. Ford. I think that we have uh, sustained uh, transmission. I think we have sustained transmission that is, that is basically uh, – Basically, you know, out of control. But but I, I think we also are beginning to see we see what we call widespread community transmission. But I think what we see is is there are multiple epidemics, right? And almost all epidemics tend to be very different. I'll give you an example. Right now, Fulton, Gwinnett, and the Cap County, those three counties in the state represent 25% of the new cases in Georgia. And if you get down, if you drill down you will see, okay, who are the people impacted? Who are the people most affected? And what we're seeing is a shift to younger people, right? But now we're beginning to see a shift to older people because the younger people are now transmitted to older people. So really, this is a very dynamic epidemic. And what you know today is not applicable tomorrow. And that's why we need, you know, lots of testing, rapid results back, and immediate contact tracing, because that's the only way to stop it. I think when you think about a country that's done a good job, you think about South Korea. And South Korea never had to lock down. But what South Korea did 
is they deployed incredible amount of testing, contact tracing, and of course, widespread face masking. And they were able to control their epidemic by never locking down. And if you see, you know, we have this, this whole debate of whether it's, you know, public health or the economy, and that's a false debate. You need a healthy population in order to open the economy. And examples of that are Europe. I mean, you look at Germany right now, and Germany is not having, yesterday we saw an incredible drop of GDP in this country like we've never seen before. And that's because we have an uncontrolled epidemic. So if we have control of the epidemic, if we control the epidemic, our economy is going to do better. So, yeah, I mean, that that seems right. I mean, I, I uh, have read a number of reports when we looked at the GDP reporting yesterday, which is pretty sta- staggering. It's record lows uh, that had we locked down, we might be still in a trough economically, but would at least we'd see an end in sight, whereas now we don't. Uh, Dr. Ford, so in the, the White House task force, and I really want to emphasize this, uh, this is the White House task force. This is not some outlier liberal policy group. This is the, the group headed by Vice President Pence uh, issuing these reports. So, so there's not, it's, it's not political. And, and here, Dr. Ford, are some of the recommendations that the White House makes for red zone states and communities. Um, mandate the use of masks in all current and evolving hotspots optimally statewide close establishing establishments where social distancing and mask use cannot occur, such as bars, nightclubs, entertainment venues, and gyms. Move to outdoor dining, limit indoor dining to less than 25% occupancy, ask every citizen to limit social gatherings to fewer than 10 people, uh, and, and there are certainly a lot more, but I think, Dr. Ford, those are some of the real highlights, and to the best of my knowledge, many of those recommendations at this point are not part of the emergency orders statewide here in Georgia. Is that right? You are correct. I am proud to say, though, that DeKalb County does have a mask ordinance um, that was just yep. passed last week. Um, and as you mentioned, um, it is time for the governor to pr- um, provide some new executive orders. So we'll, we'll have to see what those new orders um, speak to. And, and so would you, it, it, how are you handling in DeKalb? I mean, w- go ahead, Dr. Del Rio. No, if I may, uh, Bill, and, and first of all, congratulate uh, DeKalb County for doing this. But if I may, let me tell you why we need mandates and not, and not just recommendations or encouraging people. There is very good data, and you can go to a website called, called Masks for All and see the data there. There's very good data that in states that mandated masks between early June and late June, we saw a 24% decrease in number of cases. In states that just recommended masks or encouraged masks, we saw an 84% increase in the number of cases. So it is is important that we have mandates in order to decrease number of cases. Requiring or encouraging does not do that. Jim? Uh, yeah, uh, yeah, yes, 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 uh, yes. Uh, we have people saying we need to have a mass mandate. We're not going to get one. Uh, that leaves not any time, not any time soon. I don't. I, I think that is embedded ideologically too deep in in in, in Georgia politics at this point. And in uh, national and in national politics. To and be and honest, in na- oh yes, absolutely, absolutely in national politics. Uh, and and right now. And 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 further in Georgia, it's tied up in the courts in Fulton County Superior Court. Uh, we have we have uh, uh, Atlanta Mayor Keisha Lance Bottoms and Governor Brian Kemp uh, ordered into mediation on that specific issue. So let me ask you both. Let's translate this, if we can, to the practical everyday uh, uh, ways in which we behave in our community. And let me start with you, Dr. Ford, and then ask you, Dr. Del Rio. Um, the, uh, the, the, the state emergency order does still recommend, uh, if not order, I'm not quite sure how that operates, that uh, people who are medically fragile or over a certain age probably should continue to shelter in place because uh, we're, I'm one of them, more at risk for serious effects of the, the virus. But, but Dr. Ford... Is there a sense in which 
it, are, are we now at a place where we really should be thinking about a more significant lockdown, a shelter-in-place order that that is expanded to, to many, many Georgians? Or are we at the point where we have to find uh, ways to live with the virus, as in be sure you go out masked, be sure you maintain social distance, be sure you wash your hands? I mean, are we at an emergency place where we should be sheltering in place again, or or can we follow these guidelines and hope to be relatively safe? Well, you know, I think that it's easy for me to say that as the health person because I don't have to enforce it. <laughs> so, I mean, you know, I think that we're past pulling back um, restrictions. You know, it would be very tough having had a state that's been open for this long to all of a sudden go back to everything being shut down. And so I think at this point, this, what's going to be more palatable for everybody, apparently, is just to enforce the, the wearing the masks and making sure that people are outside and protected. And I know that specifically for DeKalb, we've tried to make that as easy as possible by providing masks, you know, to the community, providing hand sanitizers so that it's an easier thing to do. Um, I think that as, okay, you but- know, go ahead. I'm sorry. Go ahead. No, you go ahead. You go ahead. You know, now we have school starting and all of the risks, you know, associated with that. Even as we do distance learning, we're having discussions about what do we do with sports, you know, what, you know, and and those types of things. And so um, it's going to be really difficult to just say, okay, no sports, everybody just shut down. Um, And so if that's not what's going to happen, then we need to try to protect people as aggressively as possible without doing that, if that's, if that's how, how it's going to be in Georgia. Dr. Del Rio, how are you uh, dealing with life, just personally, in terms of navigating your way through the community in this pandemic? Are you going to the grocery store? When you do, how do you protect yourself? Are you ordering uh, groceries? Uh, are you wiping things down when they come into the house? Just how are you, as a, an expert on these subjects, how are you dealing with this in your own personal life, and what would you suggest to the rest of us? You know, using common sense and following the recommendations, I first will start by saying, Bill, I come to the hospital, I come to Grady every day, and actually seven days a week, and I'm, I'm up in the wards, and I, have, I see patients with coronavirus not infrequently. I have several research studies. I have to see them, examine them, uh, you know, and I've remained negative throughout the pandemic. So I have been in close and personal with patients with coronavirus, and and I, I can remain negative because I, you know, wear my mask, I wear my eye protection, I wash my hands, I do what's recommended. Uh, I'm, I'm, when I go to the grocery store, I don't go a lot, but when I go, I try to avoid the times that it's crowded. I always wear uh, my face mask. Uh, uh, I have not been wearing a, a shield, but I probably should. And I, I, I wipe my hands, right? If I touch the, uh, anything like the, 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 the uh, you know, the ATM uh, pad so I can enter my, my pin. After that, mm-hmm. I take my hand sanitizer and I clean my hands and I don't touch my face. I don't wipe my groceries, my bags when I get home. I don't think that's necessary. I simply unpack them, put them things in the refrigerator, in the pantry, and then, you know, just wash my hands. It's, it's hand washing that's important. I, I think it's just common sense. I think it's very important that we we, we practice the four, the, the three W's, you know, wear a mask, wash your hands, and watch your distance. Having a mask does not limit. I mean, having having a mask is not a substitute for 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 social distancing. We have to avoid social. Dis- we have to practice social distancing. And the other thing, we have to avoid what what is called the three C's: crowded spaces. So I will not go to a crowded space. You know, close proximity to people. So if I'm in a place with, and then places that have you know close places with no ventilation. So I would not go into a bar. I would not go into a restaurant. I'm still doing takeout. And if I go to a restaurant, I'll eat outside. You know, so I think it's just having common sense. I want to support the economy. I think we can get it going. I agree with Dr. Ford. I don't think we need we don't need a lockdown, but we need rules that are followed. We cannot have everybody doing something different. And certain places that are crowded, where there's close proximity, like bars, you know, like nightclubs, they do need to be closed. Unfortunately, we have to do that in order to prevent transmission. 
All right, um, let's do this. Let's get a break out of the way. When we come back, I do want to follow up, Dr. Del Rio, on what you said about working up in the wards uh, every day and talk to you about what's going on in terms of hospital resources. Uh, You're at Grady, as well as other hospitals that you have some understanding of, I imagine. And Dr. Ford, let's talk about uh, what you said, which is schools uh, starting sports, high school football is geared up. So let's talk about all that and more when we come back on Political Rewind. AJC political report writer Jim Galloway is with us. So is uh, Carlos Del Rio, Dr. Del Rio, the executive associate dean of the Emory School of Medicine and Grady Health System, professor of uh, medicine in the Division of Infectious Diseases at Emory, and uh, Dr. Sandra Ford, who is the director and CEO of the DeKalb County uh, Public Health Office, but also the uh, incoming president of the National Association of City and County Public Health Directors, and Dr. Ford, you're a board-certified pediatrician. I just yesterday read that as high school football gears up in Georgia again, uh, we now know that uh, the, 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 there are some 650 high school football players in the state who have tested positive for coronavirus. I think that's a small number given there are a hundred, couple hundred thousand young people who play high school football, but I suppose it's enough reason to be a little concerned about sports kicking off again, isn't it? Yeah, it's very concerning to me um, as a pediatrician. You know, I don't think there's any acceptable number of, of children to be exposed um, because of something actually that Dr. Del Rio had mentioned earlier is not so much children who have amazing immune systems for the most part. It's for the other folks that are around them. You know, um, a, a, a football player is probably in peak physical condition, um, but his coach may not be, you know, or the folks that he goes home to, his parents, his grandparents, and those other people um, in his household um, may not be so healthy. And so it's not just the risk to that individual child, it's all the people that are in his surroundings. And so, um, for that reason alone, it's just scary to me to think about um, children and contact sports right now. Uh, we also have the first uh, public school system in the state, to the best of my knowledge, the first one. Uh, going back to class today, Jefferson Schools uh, up northeast of Atlanta is opening for some 3,800 students who are going to school. They will not be required to wear masks. Um Dr. Ford, I'm assuming that you're feeling pretty comfortable with the fact that DeKalb schools are going to start with uh, online classes. I I would find it hard to imagine that you'd support in-person classes right now, but maybe I'm wrong. You are absolutely not wrong. Um, And I'm very happy for that. (laughs) Um, You know, uh, we have on our Board, you know, we have representation from the school district, Dr. Vassan Tinsley, and so we've been in contact literally all summer, you know, about different things related to school. And so um, while the health department does not provide um, directives, you know, I think that we are, you know, our job is to give information and help them to make uh, safe decisions. And so I'm very happy that they decided to go virtual. I think um, despite the frustrations, and I know this as a pediatrician of, you know, and as a parent of, you know, trying to manage children at home and, you know, do your day job if that's an option and try to have some level of instruction um, for the safety of everyone, that was really the only decision that could be made. Hey, uh, one one question I've got, and and I don't know if, if either of you doctors can can answer this is, is as far as athletics con- are concerned, is anybody keeping track of 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 infection? Uh, in 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 is there any category in in so, public school in the public school system? So so I don't know I don't know that, and maybe Dr. Ford knows, but I could tell you uh, the uh, uh, bill. I would recommend that people. Uh, I, I, I have been part of the advisory committee for the NCAA looking at, you know, sports and recommendations. Again, that's for college sports. Uh, and I would really encourage people to go and look at that, at that, uh, oh, those recommendations that have been made uh, by the NCAA. The reality is we, we really base those recommendations in, in evidence and data. And at this point in time, 
we all feel that there's simply too much virus in the community to do anything safely in many communities. I think we need to control the epidemic if we, need, if we want to have sports. I worry that, you know, as I said the other day, I feel like we are in, a, in, a, in the, you know, the Titanic. We hit, hit the iceberg and we're trying to decide whether we should have the band play now or later and who's going to get wet first. You know, we have bigger things to deal with right now. If you look at the NCA report, there are very clear guidelines of what the gating criteria are for re-socialization in sports. And I would recommend people look at that. It's pretty clear what the recommendations are and what people need to be doing. By the way, uh, Jim, to answer your question, yes, the Georgia High School Association does, in fact, keep track of coronavirus infections. They're the ones who were reporting that there were 644 or 650 students uh, playing football who'd been right, right. But re- reporting, so reporting is not mandatory, though. That's the problem. And you've got 469 uh, schools. Right, but we would know that uh, from the health department perspective at the local level because we are doing the contact tracing. So we would know. So um, we've been Dr. Del Rio. School district. So, Dr. Ford, let me follow up on that then. Would it be, I mean, I know these are, I'm I'm putting you in a tough spot here, but uh, should we be shutting down high school sports? I mean, that's one of the lifebloods, especially high school football, of the state of Georgia. Or do we just, as Dr. Del Rio talks about with what he's done with the NCAA, should there be really strict recommendations that high schools should follow if they're going to continue sports? Well, so, I, um, you know, I'll just repeat what I said earlier is that, you know, we the health yeah. department is not we, we are not in the decision making, you know, business as it sure. relates to the school district. So what we can do is say, hey, we do have community spread. We are in a red zone. You know, our numbers are going up. So these three things should help you make your decision about, you know, whether or not this is something that you want to do as a body. OK, Um I want to, we're, we're not, I know you two both are very, very busy. And, and so in a few minutes, I'd really uh, be delighted to let you go back to the important work you're doing. But, but before I do, um, and Dr. Del Rio, I'd like to start with you on this. Uh, I, I was looking at the Johns Hopkins uh, coronavirus site the other day. And um, like a lot of other people, and I assume you're probably one of them, uh, as are you, I imagine, Dr. Ford really calling for, Johns Hopkins says, we have to have a complete reset as a nation in terms of our response to COVID-19. And here's what they say just in the introduction to their uh, report on this. The impact of the COVID-19 pandemic in the United States has been profound. Despite initial declines in cases in May, following implementation of stringent stay-at-home orders, cases are resurging in most states. The number of deaths has been rising in many states with hospitalization rates now again matching or exceeding numbers seen at the peak in New York City in March and April. Hospitals are under pressure or approaching a crisis in many places around the country. The resurgence is stressing many sectors of society from businesses to education Healthcare, unlike many countries in the world, the United States is not currently on course to get control of this epidemic. It's time to reset. So, two things about that, Dr. Del Rio. Are you at Grady, uh, at Emory Hospital, are you starting to feel uh, a, an impact on the new hospitalizations? Is it stressing out those facilities? And how do you recover from that? And then, what about this notion of a national reset? Okay, Bill, let me first say that, start by saying that it just bothers me so much that you say, you know, looking at the Johns Hopkins report, it says, in the old days, you would have said, looking at the CDC recommendations, as much respect as I yes, have for Hopkins, yes. I really wish it was CDC giving those recommendations and not Hopkins. And removing CDC from the lead in the pandemic has been one of the, one of the biggest losses we've had. They're brilliant people at CDC. They're fantastic people at CDC, and we're not using them the way we should. So the first thing I would say in that national reset is I would give CDC the lead in, in managing this pandemic and giving us, in leading the public health the way they know how. They have written the book on this. They know what to do. Give them the lead. Let them know what they know how to do. 
that would be the natural reset that I think is We most did an important. entire show on that the other day. Just so you know, Dr. Del Rio, we did I'm an entire well show I, on I that really very subject the other day. I think it's something that we need to realize that natural reset requires that is, is, is a critical component is exactly doing that. All right. So given that, how are things going at Grady and Emory hospitals in terms of resources right now? Are you seeing a lot, a big, big increase in COVID-19 patients? We're seeing a big, big increase. Our, our hospitalizations have tripled in the last, uh, you know, uh, three weeks. Uh, we have a lot of patients, not only in Grady and Emory, but throughout the, the metro area. I think we are not, you know, at, at a breaking point, but we are stretched and we are, you know, we're really, you know, we're, we're in the treadmill. We're, the treadmill has, has been stepped up. And what I remind people, Bill, is that we talk about, well, we, we can build more ICUs, we can get more ventilators, but, but a surge, surge requires three things. And I tell this to people over and over. You require, you know, space, you require stuff, and you require staff. Space, you can take some places in the hospital, make them to ICUs, you know, the recovery rooms, et cetera. Stuff, we can go buy ventilators, we can go buy PPE, et cetera. Staff is really the challenge. You cannot make ICU nurses out of thin air. You cannot bring doctors and make them ICU specialists out of thin air. There is a limit in the number of staff you have, and all hospitals are struggling with staff, either because there's not enough or because, quite frankly, the staff have gotten infected in the community or they have family members who are sick and they need to be out or their kids are at home and they have nobody to leave them with. So staff is the greatest challenge we have in the surge. And I think, you know, I would give kudos to leadership, both at Grady and Emory that I work closely with, and how well they have managed the surge. The reality is leadership really matters, and the leadership both here at Grady and at Emory Healthcare has made, has made a huge difference. Bill, if I can interrupt here you just know, a little I'm, bit. Yeah, go ahead, Jim. Yeah, yeah. Just sure. uh, if uh, just to, if I could get Dr. Del Rio and Dr. Ford to elaborate on 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 this point here, I mean, back in the spring, we when when New York was the was was the centerpiece of of the of the, uh, of the infection, uh, we had we we were migrating uh, nurses, doctors, uh, all sorts of uh, medical staff from from other parts of the nation into New York is are, is is that even possible now i mean are there are there are there places in the country where where this virus hasn't isn't isn't raging and that can spare that kind of staff to to, to ship into, into uh, to, to ship into to georgia should it come to come to that well the problem is and the answer is no and the problem is because it's not only georgia that has a problem there are many most states there are 30 states right now that are having major outbreaks that are having increase in number of cases. And again, think about it this way. In the entire epidemic of COVID in Wuhan, China, where it started, they have had about, they had about 70,000 cases of COVID. In the U.S., we're having 70,000 cases, new cases of COVID every day. We're having a Wuhan every day right now in the United States. We need to control our epidemic. We simply don't have enough resources to continue this surge on, on, on abated. We have to do a different strategy. And I'll answer you know, that. No, Dr. The, Ford. Yes. Go mm -hmm. ahead. No, go ahead. Oh, I was going to say, um, you know, your question about bringing in outside resources, we've actually been doing that for quite some time. Um, the state is providing, you know, the locals with um, sourcing, <laughs> you know, nurses and um, other folks to assist us with this effort from all over the nation. So we've been doing that. Um, and we're running out of even staff for that. You know, there's such a huge demand all over for nurses and other clinical staff to assist with testing and contact tracing. Um, we're going to let the two of you go in a moment. I wanted to f just follow up quickly on uh, Dr. Del Rio, your comment about CDC, which is so appropriate, um, and we did. Uh, this is a subject that we've been concerned about on this show for some time and, and actually did devote an entire show to it the other day because – uh, they have lost their stature as the leader on this. And, and I think what's fascinating about that, Dr. Del Rio, is that when it comes, for instance, to testing, which we know is still a huge issue uh, in all of this, it is not now the federal government that is leading the way on this, whether it's CDC, National Institute of Health, whatever. It's the Rockefeller Foundation, which has, be has filled a vacuum and launched a national COVID-19 testing 
action plan. Dr. Del Rio, it's wonderful that there's somebody stepping in, but I think it emphasizes your point about CDC and all of its exceptional resources not being employed properly right now, doesn't it? It does, and I think testing is a good example. If we had a national coordination on testing, what what you said, for example, right now we need more testing capacity in Georgia or in Florida. There's excess testing capacity right now in Massachusetts or in New York, but it's not like you can pick up the testing capacity in Massachusetts and New York and move it to Georgia. You simply cannot do that. You have to, uh, because it's fixed, right? But if you had a national coordination, you can say, well, let's take the swabs from Georgia and move them over to New York or to Massachusetts, or let's take the swabs from Florida and send them to whatever. So there could be like an air traffic control that can look at the fastest way, because again, we need to get the time between test, between obtaining a sample and resulting a result down under 48 hours. And in order to do that, you have to use your testing capacity in, an, in, a, in a smart way. But we're not doing that because each state is left to, you know, to figure out this by, the, by its own. So you have states competing with states, and that's not the way to respond to an epidemic. We cannot respond to a pandemic with 50 different plans. Well, um, Dr. Ford, do you want to make a last statement about that? Um, I, I want to give you that chance before we take our break. Or, or some, well, in, in general, your feelings about right now. I think it's always ease of compliance with uniformity. Um, and so, you know, we were happy in DeKalb when the rest of Metro decided to go virtual for schools because it just makes things easier. And so I think, you know, having a national plan would help because then everyone's on the same page. Right, Dr. Sandra Ford, Dr. Carlos Del Rio, both of you have been terrific to take time away from, I know, very, very busy schedules. Thank you for all you're doing in your own uh, spheres to try to fight the coronavirus and, and also for being willing to share your thoughts with us uh, today. Thank you both so much for being here. Please, both of you, take care and stay healthy, okay? Thank you so much for having me. Appreciate it. Thank you so much, Bill. And, and stay safe right. also. And a pleasure to be with Dr. Ford yeah. and with you. Yeah. And again, I would just encourage your viewers, please, you know, it's up to us to stop this pandemic. Wear your face mask, watch your distance, wash your hands, stay safe. And the best thing you can do is not get infected. I, 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 I support that 100%. Let's take a break. We'll be right back with more on Political Rewind. You know, Jim, I didn't ask them before they left because I wanted to free them up to go do their work, but I wanted to ask them how optimistic they are about getting out of this anytime soon, but I think we already heard the answer to that. I don't yeah, think yeah, they're the, very optimistic. Right. There was not, there was, there was not a lot of, uh, of, uh, of uh, immediate hope there, I think. I think uh, yeah, and and yeah. I think what we're, you, you mentioned that Fauci, uh, Dr. Fauci was going before Congress uh, 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 today, and I think that's going to be his message: that uh, that yeah. the, 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 this is an this is an open-ended crisis. Well, let's talk about another message, uh, Jim. I think we were both, like many many people, like most people, incredibly moved by the services for John Lewis. I mean, we were moved by the whole week of activity around his uh, passing, but. The funeral yesterday to have three former presidents of the United States pay tribute to him was was really extraordinary. Um, but, of course, I think what's worth really focusing on is President Obama, who did, in fact, eulogize him, but also threw down the gauntlet about free and fair elections on the same day that President Trump tweeted, maybe we need to delay the effect the election in November. Yeah, yeah, and, and as far as... Uh uh, Trump's two tweets on that topic go. You, you know, you have do have to recognize uh, that uh, that that some terrible economic news was coming out, uh, even just as he was was tweeting, and 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 uh, distraction may have been part of the part of the strategy there. But I mean, but it's something that he has said too many times to to ignore, and to have that happen right as you're getting ready to bury a man who dedicated his life. To the to to the issue of voting rights, uh, you 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 couldn't you couldn't ignore the juxtaposition, and and I think uh, I, I think Obama saw that as an opening. Uh, 
Let's listen to uh, uh, just a, a moment from the Obama uh, eulogy yesterday as he talked about the legacy of John Lewis fighting for voting rights and the fact that he believes the fight continues. Here's President Obama. We may no longer have to guess the number of jelly beans in a jar in order to cast a ballot. But even as we sit here, there are those in power who are doing their darndest to discourage people from voting by closing polling locations and targeting minorities and students with restrictive ID laws and attacking our voting rights with surgical precision, even undermining the Postal Service in the run-up to an election that's going to be dependent on mail-in ballots so people don't get sick. Jim, powerful words. Yeah, and 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 I, I will tell you, it just just from a, a, a news standpoint, the most most important uh, thing he said is is if if we are going to to expand, uh, uh, if we're going to have things like he countenanced uh, automatic voter registration on election day holiday uh, to to increase voter turnout. Thing, such such things, he says. If we need to kill the Senate filibuster in order to get that to happen, uh, then we need to do it. That was that was that was remarkable news. Yeah, I'm really glad you pointed that out. It was except it was extraordinary to hear the president, uh, the former president, uh, uh, say that. Um, so, Jim, like, we've talked about John Lewis a, a lot on the show since his death, and and it's right that we've done it. Um, he's now uh, gone to his final resting place. He's uh, buried next to his wife, Lillian, at Southview Cemetery. I, I was struck yesterday when I looked up Southview Cemetery on, on the web that they've had a mission since uh, 18, the late 1800s of being an inclusive cemetery that accepts people of all faiths, all, uh, all uh, races, and that's always been a part of the, what they are, and did that at a time when there were, of course, segregated uh, cemeteries. Um, but so as we wrap up uh, uh, this conversations we've been having for a week, what are your final thoughts as we send John Lewis off? Well, you know, you know to, to, to me, I was, uh, I was struck by the connection he made in his final years I mean, he was 80 years old. I mean, he was older than both of us, not by a whole lot, but 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 somewhat. <laughs> I was I, I was I was truly struck by the connection he had he had made uh, with uh, with 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 a young generation, with 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 yeah. with uh, kids who are who are not yet old enough to vote. Uh, he became something of an of. I mean, you use the the word icon. I, I you know, maybe a maybe a pioneer is the better word for it. Uh, Obama had a, a had an interesting phrase that I think most newspapers picked up on, and that was he 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 declared Lewis to be the founding father of a better America. Uh, and, yeah. and I think yeah. that's 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 a that's a that's a forward looking uh, uh, title that I think he would have enjoyed. Well, I'm sure that in the months ahead, weeks ahead, that John Lewis's name will come up uh, because many of the matters that he cared most about, particularly voting rights, are certainly going to be in the news. And uh, so he will not be long forgotten uh, on the show, or or it it will be continuing to remind people about him. Jim, let's uh, change the subject uh, for just a minute. And, And one of the things I want to talk about really does relate to John Lewis's uh, uh, the services for him. I thought it was fascinating that in the state rotunda the uh, the other day, when uh, when Calvin Smyrie, when Governor Kemp and Mayor Keisha Lance Bottoms in a private service were uh, asked to make remarks about the legacy of John Lewis, Mayor Bottoms didn't waste an opportunity <laughs> to go after Governor Kemp about his uh, court case on the, the mask mandate that the city has put in place. She basically said to him uh, something to the effect of, and Governor, uh, just so you know, uh, John Lewis did support good trouble and made it clear that's what she thought she was involved with in, in court with him. I thought that was interesting. Yeah, there was a little English on that fastball, wasn't there? 
<laughs> yeah. Uh, and, and, yeah, and, it really and, was. And it's, uh, you know, it's just interesting. It's, it's this, this, this pandemic has just, just enveloped the politics of, of the moment. Uh, and I, and I'm sure it's going to be for yeah. the, the, the same for the next, for the next three and four months. One thing we do need to mention is the death of Herman Cain, uh, 2012 presidential candidate. I was just going to come to that. Talk about it. Yeah. Well, he, I mean, it. he was, he was, he was a very unusual figure. I mean, he wasn't a Georgia native. Uh, he was, he was from, uh, he's, he kind of got to start from the, his, uh, uh, he, 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 he I, I think, was born in in Tennessee. His parents came down here, worked for worked for uh, Robert Woodruff. You know, uh, made his bones as a businessman in the Midwest. Came back down here, uh, ran in twenty twelve for the Senate seat uh, against Johnny Isaacson. Or uh, I'm sorry, I've got that year wrong. Uh, ran for I think two thousand six for for uh, Johnny Isaacson's seat. Uh, lost. Uh, ran a, a a really interesting 2012 campaign for president, and and of course was a was a longtime radio voice here on WSB. His father was Robert W. Woodruff's chauffeur. Robert W. Woodruff, of course, at the time as the uh, head of Coca Cola Company, maybe the single most powerful business leader in, in the Southeast, and one of the most. In the country, his father, a chauffeur, and Herman Cain went on uh, to uh, to great success in business with his pizza chain, uh, and um, he was he was he also was rare, Jim, as a one of the few African American Republicans who was able to really make an impact in his own political career, being able to run for president. There was a time, as you'll remember, before the Iowa caucuses when he was running number one in the polls, for goodness sake. Right, right, right. He was an ABC, Afri- uh, 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 um, uh, an American black conservative. Uh, and uh, and he, he told me once, it was 2004 that he ran this for the Senate, and he, he told me he told me that uh, that when he when he got rich off the, off the pizza business, that's when he started thinking about uh, 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 politics and taxes, and that's why he became a Republican. So uh, we're really completely out of time uh, for today's show, Jim. Uh, but um, thank you all out there uh, who've been listening to the show and who've been continuing to write me about your feelings about the show, uh, how you're doing in the pandemic. And I'm especially appreciative of those of you who've written to say how much you appreciated our uh, shows in which we focused a lot on the life of John Lewis. It's really great to know that it's mattered to you out there as well. Jim Galloway, thank you for being with us. I know Monday you're taking off. I'll miss you on Monday, but we'll get you back a week from today for more on Political Rewind. Take care, Jim. You all take care out there, too. I'm Bill Nygut. Uh, See you on Monday. Take care. Stay healthy.